0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The Democrats have control of the state legislature in Colorado, but that doesn't mean they agree on everything, like coming up with a plan for paid family leave. Pretty much every interest in this building will be impacted by this bill, which means you have a lot of opinions. We'll look at what's causing the division before a bill's even introduced, and what happens now. Then Colorado is known for its mountains, but when it comes to naming one, that can feel like a peak too big to climb.
1: It was quite difficult, both personally and emotionally, as well as logistically.
0: And he went from the Colorado Matters team to Team USA. We'll get an update on a three-on-three basketballer who could soon be in the Olympics. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Listen now to a tale of how hard it is to make major public policy changes, even if you put in years of work, have public opinion on your side, and total control of state government. Democrats in the state legislature have been working for years on proposals to ensure Colorado workers can take paid family leave. Governor Jared Polis says he wants it too, but the bill to make it possible may fall apart before it's even introduced. CPR's Andrew Kenny is following this saga and joins me now. Hi, Andrew. Hello, Avery. Let's start with this proposed program and how it would work. What's the idea here?
2: So the central idea is the same thing the Democrats have been talking about for years now, which is they think that workers should have the right to take, you know, at least a couple months off of paid leave from their jobs when, say, they have a kid or they have a family medical emergency. The bill on the table, what it would have done would be to mandate the companies one way or another, let you do that, whether it's by just paying your wages directly or the company could buy private insurance to cover the cost of you taking that time off.
0: And why is it such a divisive idea?
2: Well, this bill has proved to be controversial from a couple different angles. First, you've got the general resistance from Republicans and businesses who for a long time have said, yeah, we love the idea of paid family leave. We don't want government. Mandating it, but also what we've heard is resistance from uh, some on the left as well, because what this does is it's a private market approach. You know, it's it's saying government, uh, or rather, business has to provide it, and you know, government's going to get involved in setting up some private insurance policies to cover it. But it's moving away from a previous idea that would have had the government collecting a lot of money, and the government itself would be paying the wages for. Uh, for employees who are taking time off,
0: and would this apply to all companies or just companies of a certain size based on number of employees? The,
2: the bill on the table right now would start with companies of twenty employees and then would ratchet down to ten employees. It would exclude seasonal workers, um, but you know the idea would be to kind of broaden it out as the years go on. So
0: this doesn't apply to everyone, but it does apply to a lot more people. That's right. Um, and what would the what do the Democrats in the legislature want to see?
2: Well. That's a good question. You know, this was the, this private approach that's proved so controversial among Democrats. Um, I should set up what happened was that, uh, earlier they were looking at this public model, governor Jared Polis signaled that he didn't want to create this billion dollar a year program to cover workers' wages and that he might veto it. So instead the sponsors who have been working on this for so long now said, okay, we'll try this private hybrid approach. And it seemed like it was going to go forward, but just over the weekend, two of the four sponsors dropped out saying that there were the bill didn't do enough to protect low-income workers. They weren't very specific in their criticism, but it was a, a big sign that you know, this bill is just having trouble coalescing support.
0: So even though the concept is something that everyone supports, it's how to get there that's causing a lot of division. Always is. So there are two camps here, private mandate or public program. How is that playing out with this proposed bill?
2: Well, so we we got into that just a little bit earlier, but um, now that question of public or private is playing out because, you know, maybe it seems somewhat straightforward. Like, what's the difference whether it's the government providing it or whether it's a the company mandating, or rather the company is being mandated to provide it. But there's a lot of debate over whether that would really play out fairly. The critics of this private approach say that if the government's in charge, if the government's the one cutting you the check when you need to take time off for your sick family member or for having a new kid, they said that's going to be simpler, more straightforward. And they, they worry that the private approach will, you know, because it's a basically a for-profit model, for-profit companies are, are going to be the ones selling the insurance policies that help companies pay you, they're worried that there's going to be an incentive for them to deny your claim or even an incentive for companies not to hire people who they suspect are going to have a kid soon.
0: And it sounds like Governor Polis, like what you were saying earlier, he's a major player in this drama.
2: That's right. And so now, you know, some groups have suggested that the ball, now that the bill is starting to fall apart, that the ball is in his court. Um you know, the Working families, working Family Party says that at this point, you know, he should butt out and he should signal his support for the public model that all the Democrats can rally around. But it's not completely clear that that is the only problem. Uh, Senator Faith Winter suggested to me that they've also had trouble coalescing support from uh, Democratic lawmakers other than Jared Polis as well.
0: At this point, does this look like a doomed effort this year?
2: Well, Senator Winter was really distraught. Yesterday morning, in an interview with the Denver Post, she said that she had failed Coloradans, and Alex Bernes reported that she was in tears. But when I talked to her a few hours later, she said, you know, I am resilient, and I may have been really, really, really pessimistic about this this morning, but I've had some time to talk to my caucus. And, you know, I talked to other lawmakers, and, to, and this is me speaking now, I talked to other lawmakers and lobbyists and people involved, and they said, you know, you really don't know until a bill either fails or succeeds, what's going to happen? So I would suspect there's a lot of conversations going on now. And it may be that it was more of a debate over the smaller details and not necessarily the whole model. So we won't know for for some time whether or not this is truly finished.
0: Andy, who is paid family leave for? It's not just about folks having babies, right?
2: No, that's right. So the way it's, it's... meant to be set up right now is that, uh, first of all, like you said, if you did have a child, you would be able to take off for paternity, maternity leave. But it's also available for people who are dealing with a medical emergency for themselves and also a medical emergency for an ailing family member or somebody who is a close relation.
0: So this is something that can affect really anyone in the workforce at any age.
2: That's right, especially, you know, people with uh, aging parents. And some of the debate, I should add, has been about who should count as that close relation. Uh, Right now it says a family member or a blood-like relation who you have a mutually dependent financial connection to. But some uh, some on the left wanted a more broad definition because they worried that, uh, say, immigrants or LGBT people who might not have that more formally defined relationship, could be excluded. That's been one of the sticking points for the bill.
0: So how many states have mandated paid family leave for workers right now?
2: It seems to be growing by the year. At this point, there are, I believe, eight states and Washington, D.C. What's really interesting is that just about half of those are still in the process of implementing it because they've written their law just in the last couple of years. So even since Colorado started talking about this, uh, you know, five years ago or so, other states have kind of lapped us and come online with their own program.
0: And is there a standard model for how states are doing it?
2: Yeah, so Colorado is looking at something different than the other states. The other states have all set up a state-run model, uh, a state-run program that, like I said earlier, is able to pay the employees' wages, that collects kind of fees or taxes, builds up a big pile of money, and then uses that to pay the wages when you need that time off. Colorado is not looking at doing that.
0: And... Colorado, you as we've talked about, is looking at several different ways of doing that. But when you're talking with lawmakers, are they looking at specifically something that's happening in other states that they don't want to see with their program?
2: Um, not exactly. So what Colorado is looking at is this private mandate where we're just telling, we would just tell employers that they have to go out and find a way to provide it. And they could buy the coverage to do that, like we said, from a, a regulated insurance marketplace. In other states, Businesses have the option to do that, to find their own way, but every other state has also created a state-run program that businesses primarily are going to turn to. Colorado's not looking at doing that.
0: So this idea that Governor Polis backs requiring companies to offer it and using private insurers to underwrite the cost, that's unusual is what you're saying.
2: Yeah, that's right. And that's that's part of the debate. Um, we would be doing something new. And, and the supporters like to call it kind of a Colorado way. Is we're going to experiment with something new, for better or for worse.
0: <laughs> and the federal government is also discussing paid leave proposals, right?
2: Yeah, that's right. The United States is really one of the very few countries left on this planet. And I believe it's the only industrialized country that doesn't do required paid family leave in one way or another. You know, most countries at least have paid maternity leave. So we're really in there. I I looked this up the other day with kind of Papua New Guinea and a couple other countries that don't have anything. And it's really become a national issue because it's become impossible almost to support a family on just one income stream. So people are needing a way to take time off to care for their kids or their, their loved ones because they just don't have it right now. So at the federal level, Ivanka Trump has really been pushing her father's administration, President Donald Trump, to do something about this. Last year, Congress and the president extended this paid family leave concept to all federal workers. And now there's a bipartisan proposal in Congress that would create this at a national level, but that would not really replicate what we're doing uh, at the state level, because all it would do, it would allow workers to take that paid time off, but the money for it would be coming from your future child tax credits. So you'd essentially be borrowing money from your future self to take some time off now, if that makes sense to you.
0: Oh, interesting. So I think you really hit on the pressure for this in that it's hard to support a family on one income stream now. Talk to me a little bit about what you're hearing from lawmakers or folks you're talking to in your reporting.
2: Well, they... What's really interesting is that this is the time that a lot of lawmakers think, especially on the Democratic side, they can get something done. They have total control on the Democratic side of every branch of state government. They've been working on this for five years. They want to go and do this. But it's such a big new undertaking. You know, This is a fundamental new right that would apply to all Coloradans and, and would cost quite a bit of money to implement and, you know, of course, raises questions for businesses about how they're going to operate when their employees leave. But... You know, when you... When you talk about that to especially people who support this idea, they say that if we don't do this, then we're going to be in trouble because businesses need to figure out a way to allow people to take this time off or they're just going to lose their employees.
0: And I want to wrap up in Colorado. If the state legislature doesn't act and if if that congressional bill doesn't move forward, are there any other paid leave proposals in the offing for Colorado workers?
2: Well, this is Colorado, so that leaves the option of the ballot initiative. And there actually is a group already that is trying to go through the process to put this concept of paid family leave on the ballots for this November. They say they've got a bunch of money to support this, so if nothing happens at the legislature... People could indeed be voting on this in November. Thanks, Andy. Thank you.
0: That's our public affairs reporter, Andrew Kenny. He's also one of the hosts of our weekly state politics podcast, Purplish. It's a great thing to check out if you want to go even deeper with everything going on in the State House and really understand the big issues being debated in our state. That's Purplish, CPR's podcast on Colorado's politics and democracy, with new episodes coming out every Friday. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I remember my first gift to public radio. After making that first gift, listening felt better. I knew that I was in some way making it possible. I don't remember specifically what they said. I just, I just remember them using the words member-supported. And I didn't know that public radio was funded by members.
2: If you want to support, pay it forward and, and provide this service to others, I invite you to make your first gift. It's really easy to do at CPR.org.
0: Moving mountains is proverbially one of the most difficult tasks a person takes on. Well, naming mountains might also fall into that category. Listener Robert Taylor of Grand Junction wants to name a mountain after a longtime family friend. He asked Colorado Wonders, what is the process to propose a name and get it approved? My colleague Ryan Warner has the answer.
3: There is indeed a process, Robert, but peak naming comes with unique challenges. Since 1890, almost 500 peaks in Colorado have been named by a federal board that oversees these types of things. And those name changes happened after a state board recommended them first. It's not as easy as having one board just rubber stamp a proposed name. When somebody has a proposal, we get input from as many sources as possible. So National Forest Service,
2: there could be uh, county commissioners local input is very important uh, you know the people that live in the in the immediate community native american groups uh, we 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 try
3: to get you know everybody's input because when you name something it's permanent that is retired colorado state archivist george orlovsky a member of the colorado board on geographic names he spoke with colorado matters in 2015 about the process to name mountains lakes rivers and other features in colorado a state, he notes, is overflowing with name proposals because of its abundance of peaks. We also got a firsthand account from someone who proposed names for two peaks in southwest Colorado. Telluride attorney and mountaineer Steve Johnson ran into just about every complication possible before his decade-long effort finally succeeded last summer. It literally took an act of Congress. Fowler and Boscoff Peaks are now on the map at the northern edge of San Miguel County, thanks to Johnson. He named these side-by-side peaks after Norwood-based mountaineers Charlie Fowler and Christine Boscoff. They died in an avalanche while climbing in Tibet in 2006.
1: We were casting about for what to do and how could we honor these two great American mountaineers and came up with the idea of trying to name a peak after them, or two peaks after them.
3: First, Johnson had to wait five years after Fowler and Boscoff died to actually submit a proposal. That's a board requirement. In the interim, he learned about another hurdle.
1: I did some further research on the name board policies and found out that they discouraged naming natural features in wilderness areas after humans. And both of these 13er peaks above Elk Creek Basin in the western part of the Wilson Range of the San Juans, both those peaks had contiguity with the Lizardhead Wilderness Area. So one side of <laughs> the peaks didn't and one side did. And that became pretty problematic.
3: Someone who supported naming the peaks suggested Johnson look into legislation to get around the wilderness wrinkle. He did, but that meant getting community support and a lot of it.
1: I went and got the support of the San Miguel County Commissioners, all of whom knew Charlie, uh, who, by the way, he was very humble. And, uh, From there, we got the board of the Mountain Film. We got the Access Fund, where I was working as a regional coordinator for Western Colorado. and We got the American Alpine Club, we got the American Mountain Guides Association, Osprey Packs, Colorado Mountain Club, and, and some other groups to write letters of support.
3: But now that Johnson's proposal was in the political arena, things, of course, got messy. It was at first supposed to be a part of the San Juan Wilderness Act, but that stalled. And after, it was attached to another round of legislation, and he had to get new endorsements and support from neighboring Dolores County.
1: So we got both of the counties that are affected by the peaks, that you could see the peaks from, and we got local governments, uh, Town of Telluride and Town of Norwood, and All that enabled the senators and representatives to uh, support the bill finally. And, you know, they slipped it into this massive bill and boom, it got passed and signed by the president.
3: Jennifer Runyon, a researcher with the U.S. Board on Geographic Names, said it typically takes 8 to 12 months from submission to decision for an uncomplicated name change. She says this is the only known time it took an act of Congress to name mountains in Colorado. In the end, Steve Johnson said taking a decade to have a name approved did take its toll.
1: It was quite difficult, both personally and emotionally, as well as logistically.
3: As for George Orlovsky, the retired state archivist, he actually doesn't mind that the process can be complicated and exacting. Do we really have to name everything in the state? Colorado is a state that has a lot of features, Do we have to name everything, or do we leave something for future generations to name? So some questions back at you, Robert Taylor of Grand Junction. What do you wonder about in Colorado? Let us know at cpr.org slash Colorado Wonders, and we may investigate. I'm Ryan Warner, CPR News.
0: There are five other peaks in Colorado right now waiting on naming decisions. Four of them would get new names to get rid of old ones that are considered offensive. Among them, Mount Evans, one of the state's most famous peaks. It's named after the territorial governor who ordered the Sand Creek Massacre, a raid in 1864 which killed 230 southern Cheyenne and Arapaho people. More than half of those who died were women and children. The Colorado legislature named the mountain after John Evans in 1895, three decades after he was forced to resign as governor because of the massacre. There are two proposed new names for Mount Evans. The first is Mount Cheyenne Arapaho, in honor of those killed. The other suggested name is Mount Soul, to commemorate Silas Soul, the Army captain who refused to participate in the massacre. Again, send us your questions about the state through Colorado Wonders at cpr.org/slash Colorado Wonders. Super Tuesday is one week from today, and one of the people casting their ballot is 18-year-old Nick Venner. He's voting for the first time in the presidential primary, but it won't be his first experience with politics. We're introducing you to voters from across the state leading up to Super Tuesday. CPR environment reporter Michael Elizabeth Sackis met up with Venner at a library in Lakewood. Venner has
4: his backpack and laptop ready to head to Denver for class at Metropolitan State University.
5: At the current point in time, I am doing some math research into game and group theory.
4: He rocks in his seat, his tight curly brown hair bouncing. He tells me he registered as unaffiliated. His top issue is climate change.
5: My future includes global refugee crises, massive extinction, the death of many ecosystems, and potentially the collapse of global civilization.
4: That's tough. (laughs) He first learned about those potentially harsh realities after his parents voted for Obama in 2008. They wanted action on climate change and were disappointed.
5: You see that inevitably go nowhere and discarded for other political goals.
4: Venner was only 14 when he decided to do something about it. He joined 11 other young people in a lawsuit against the federal government over its inaction on climate change.
5: This case that I've poured a lot, like kind of my life and soul into.
4: The court threw it out just last month. Now he's part of the climate activist group Extinction Rebellion. He went as far as to get arrested at a protest, but he's disillusioned about actual progress.
5: You have the cause for real hope, the hope that real things might get done, and then you really don't see any real change getting done.
4: But he still plans to vote. I ask him if he feels like that could change things. This was his first answer. I'd like to say statistically no. He brings up a statistic. Remember, Venner studies math, that your vote has one in some million chance of determining a national election outcome. Once his point is made, he says what matters is building a movement, like with civil rights.
5: That movement grew and grew up until it was able to force substantial change. And that's going to be the thing that's going to need to happen with this.
4: So this time, Venner plans to vote for Bernie Sanders. Venner says Sanders gives him and his friends hope for the ideas they've been fighting for. He knows time is running out to keep the worst of climate change's effects at bay. He holds his hands out wide and says,
5: As you go along, your window for change goes like this.
4: He brings his hands together. He's scared that after this election, there won't be a chance to say, we can do better next time. I'm Michael Elizabeth Sackis, CPR News.
0: You can hear other stories about Coloradans and why they vote as a part of our Voter Voices project at CPR.org three-on-three basketball will make its Olympic debut this summer in Tokyo, and the U.S. has a good chance of competing there. The Americans won the three-on-three World Cup gold medal in Amsterdam last year. Team USA will finish with their first gold medal Here's That win gave the U.S. a chance to play in the Olympic qualifying tournament, and we learned this month that Kareem Maddox has been named to the four-member squad for Team USA. We were fortunate to have him as a member of Colorado Matters team until just a few years ago. My colleague Andrea Dukakis spoke with him after the World Cup about this
6: up-and-coming sport and his dreams of the Olympics. Kareem, it's so nice to talk to you.
7: Yeah, it's nice to be back.
6: What is three-on-three basketball?
7: So three on three basketball is exactly what it sounds like. It's played on the half court instead of a full court. There's three players on the court for each team at any one time. Though you have four players um, on the roster because it's pretty tiring game. So. Three on three basketball is exactly what it sounds like. Three guys against three guys on a half court.
6: So, does it move even faster than traditional basketball?
7: It does. It does. So, it's a little bit of a new sport, and the rules have kind of changed. It's not, you know, your grandfather's three on three, you know, outside at the park kind of basketball. It's continuous play. So, there's a 12 second shot clock. There's no checkup. So, there's no stoppage of play in between scores. So, it moves really fast.
6: Yeah. And how would you compare it to you know, traditional basketball, because you played at Princeton. How do you feel after a three-on-three game compared to, again, a traditional basketball game?
7: Yeah, it's exhausting. Um, I feel like way more tired. I mean, there's times in five-on-five basketball where you can make a few trips up the court without having to ever really do anything. Whereas in this game, in three on three, you're just always moving, you're always playing, you're always exerting effort. It's a really physical game. So you're always like, you know, kind of like grappling with someone on the other team for position. So it's like you use like every muscle in your body at all times. And so you you see a lot of subs, you know, we sub ourselves out every single opportunity that we get. So if the ball goes out of bounds, you know, we're usually arguing with one another uh, for who should come out of the game this time to get a quick break.
6: And you're the ones deciding whether to come out or not, not a coach.
7: There's no coach. Yeah, exactly. So you're not allowed to have a coach on the court. So exactly. So no coach on the floor.
6: Did the game evolve out of street play, you know, playing in a park downtown somewhere?
7: It's kind of being billed as like an urban sport. Right, Where you don't need kind of like the more formalized elements of basketball, you know, indoor hardwood. So I guess, yeah, it it is kind of seen as an urban outdoor sport, but just like a formalized version of that, if that makes sense. So it, it did kind of evolve from like, you know, I think one of the slogans is like, From the streets to the Olympics, because when people think of three on three, they think of, you know, going and playing at the park with whoever you can gather up and you only have six guys. So you play three on three in the same way that the Olympics added beach volleyball Mm -hmm. as a complement to indoor volleyball. It's the more kind of urban street version of the sport.
6: And it's just gotten more and more popular over time. What was the final World Cup match like? You defeated Latvia.
7: Yeah, it was, I would describe it as a uh, as a dogfight. You know, those guys we are familiar with from playing three-on-three for the past few years. So we know them well, and we know they compete very hard, and they're tough to beat. I mean, they're really athletic, uh, good players. You know, we were up, I th- believe, for most of the game— But, you know, we never could quite pull away. We were always, you know, a couple points ahead, one point, two point, three points ahead. But um, we couldn't just extend the lead further than that. So it made for a very nerve-wracking kind of game. It was like a defensive battle. You know, the rules of three-on-three are it's first to 21 or 10 minutes, whichever comes first. And Mm -hmm. this game only reached, you know, the final score was 18 to 14. So that's a kind of like wrestling match defensive battle that it was.
6: So... Your day job is radio. you work in radio still, since Colorado matters. How do you prepare for this when you're working a day job and trying to practice basketball?
7: I don't know. I guess it reminds me a bit of college, right? So being a student athlete um, and playing you know Division one varsity sport was like you just had to manage your time well. You know, the difference being that the time that I have to manage to play basketball happens in the early mornings and late nights rather than in the middle of the day. So, I mean, it's tough. I mean, it's a lot of travel. I'll leave on Wednesday night to fly to China and come back and be at my desk on a Monday Monday afternoon. But there's little tricks. So, you know, when I was a full-time athlete playing either professionally or in college, You know, I would have music on while I was working out. Now I'm listening to podcasts or radio shows while I'm working out for basketball, kind of killing two birds with one stone. You find ways to make it happen. But I would also say it's not unique. You know, there's a lot of um, Olympic hopefuls in other sports that are doctors, lawyers. So it's a path others have walked. And the dream is to get to the Olympic Games. So whatever it takes, you know, we're up to do it.
6: Kareem, it's great to catch up with you.
7: You too. Thanks for having me.
0: Green Maddox, a former producer here at Colorado Matters, speaking with my colleague Andrew Dukakis in July. Maddox now works for Gimlet Media in New York. He's just been named to Team USA as it competes for one of three spots in the 2020 Summer Olympics in Tokyo. <laughs> That's it for Colorado Matters for today. Truly, we are so appreciative of your support, especially during this fun drive. Thank you also to our executive producer, Carl Belick, producers Anthony Cotton, Andrea Dukakis, Michelle P. Fulcher, and Alexandra McMahon. Our audio engineers are Michael Hughes, Matt Furze, and Shane Rumsey. I'm Avery Lill, my co-host Ryan Warner. This is CPR News, Colorado Matters.